You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hello, I'm Miriam Kelly, curator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging the people of the Kulin Nations as custodians of the land on which ACCA is located. I extend my respects to elders past, present and future and to all First Nations people tuning into this program. It is my pleasure to welcome you to ACCA's 2021 lecture series, Experimental Institutionalism, Contemporary Art and Curatorial Ecologies. After the richness of our 2019-2020 Contemporary Exhibition History series, which is now available as podcast and video at acca.melbourne, we conceived of this year's annual lecture series to pose the questions, where are we now and what's next? Across seven different topics, this lecture series delves into an array of contemporary artistic practices, exhibitions, curatorial approaches, editorial work, and organizational models. And these are things that are reflecting on and working with the conditions of our radically changing times. Bringing together international and Australian speakers in each session, we also wanted to encourage dialogues across borders at a time of very limited movement. In each session, we hear from speakers who encourage us to consider ways of working and learning differently in response to the specificities of both local and global concerns. This fourth dialogue in the series is broadly themed around issues of employment and entrepreneurship, giving consideration to the issues of labor and changing modes of working in the arts. And I'm honored to be joined by Julieta Aranda in Berlin and Alana Kushnia in Melbourne. Alana Kushnia is an art lawyer and curator. She is the director and founder of Guestwork Agency, an art law and advisory practice and Alana recently joined the ACCA board. Alana is also the principal investigator of the Serpentine Gallery's R&D platform, Legal Lab, which explores how the law can better support collaborations across science and technology. Alana will speak to the growing importance of solid legal structures to support artists and institutions as they are increasingly working in collaborative and cross-disciplinary modes. In the face of the rapid advancement of technology, and the reduction of traditional streams of revenue, what does the future of artistic work look like? Julieta Aranda is an artist and co-director of the online platform eFlux. Her artistic practice spans installation, video and print media, and she has exhibited widely internationally. Julieta has a particular interest in the creation and manipulation of artistic exchange and the subversion of traditional notions of commerce through art making. In her talk, Julieta asks, what else might it take for the art world, art world to be a sustainable system? And she argues that looking at the present toxic environments of industrial capitalism is the first vital step in considering how we might generate viable future arts ecologies. My guests will each speak for 20 minutes and then join me in a conversation. Thank you very much, Alana and Julieta. Thank you to Bianca, Miriam, Max, and the entire ACA team who have made this series of lectures possible. I'm very grateful to be given the space to do this and to be in conversation with Julieta today. And I also wanted to thank my um, intern at Guestwork Agency, Jasper Salamons, who's done a, a wonderful job in supporting me in the research for this lecture. 
So by way of introduction, my lecture today will focus on the changing modes of working of artists. And as Miriam uh, indicated, um, the reasons for the changing modes of working that I'll be focusing on are the rapid advancement of technology and also the reduction of traditional streams of revenue for artists. Now I'm going to be focusing on the increasing reliance on collaborative, scaled up modes of working in response to these causes. And I'm also going to look at the role of labour in collaborative modes of working. Now there are two new forms of scaled up modes of working that I'm going to introduce, specifically the concept of the art stack and the concept of the DAO or decentralised autonomous organisation. Now, the crux of my argument will be that the future contemporary art ecology relies on these collaborative and scaled up modes of working, but that these modes of working should be underpinned by a solid legal structure. In other words, with a solid legal structure, the future artwork can be better built. I'll also be exploring the benefits of the corporate veil and how incorporated business structures, structures can better be utilised by artists. Ultimately, I think that the artist has a lot more potential as an artist, as a risk taker, as a change agent, if they adopt the mindset of the entrepreneur rather than the mindset of an employee. And so I ask, what can entrepreneurialism in art practice look like in 2021? So firstly, I wanted to preface the discussion with a little bit of a dig deeper into the motivations for changing modes of working. Now, the 21st century has seen a significant reduction in traditional streams of revenue for arts and culture, particularly government funding the world over. And while, for example, here in Australia, the government, the federal government has committed in its most recent budget $222.9 million over two years to support the arts sector through the impacts of COVID, We've also seen, by way of comparison, the introduction of the digital economy strategy, which represents a much bigger $1.2 billion investment, as well as Australia's first nationwide tax offset for games development. Now, the second impetus for the changing modes of working is the rapid advancement of technology and the support of digital innovation. And here at the local level, we've very recently seen the Australia Council for the Arts release its own report on how digital culture is influencing the arts in, in real life, mapping digital culture in the, in the first decades of the 21st century. And this report examines these new technologies, how they're used and what they mean for arts and cultural engagement now and into the future. Now they've also released a second report on digital cultural strategy for 2021 to 2024 and an online industry forum to support the distribution of these reports. Now by way of comparison, a similar scheme deployed by the UK government between 2012 and 2015 saw a seven million pound digital R&D fund issued by Arts Council England to support digital innovation in the cultural sector. Now, the point I want to make here is that we have a number of government initiated schemes around the world which are designed to support digital innovation. And it is this, um, it is this stream of funding that will have the potential to change the working methods of artists. Now, I also wanted to preface the discussion on scaled up modes of working with a look into the concept of collaboration itself and its connection with the concept of labour. 
Now the word collaboration dates back to the mid 19th century and stems from the Latin word collaborare, which derives from com meaning with and laborare meaning to work or labor. Now today the qualities of I'd say unity and togetherness are relevant to the use of the word collaboration. But the other quality that remains relevant to collaborations today is the implicit role of tension between the parties in the collaborative process. And it's that push and pull of tension in collaborations that can also be understood in the form of power relations. In the collaborative process, not all parties contribute in the same manner or form. And indeed, that's usually the point of collaborating. One could say that collaboration requires both labor and capital. One collaborator is often responsible for providing the labor in the relationship in the form of time or skill or both, while the other provides the capital in the form of financial capital, cultural capital or both. In other words, each party in a collaboration offers a different form of value to make the relationship beneficial to one another. And it's with these different forms of value being provided that the power relations between the parties are inherently at play in the collaborative process. As Chantal Mouffe suggests, every order is the expression of a particular structure of power relations. So how can we apply this thinking around collaboration and labour to the changing modes of working for artists? In the previously mentioned Australia Council in Real Life report, it states that despite the positive outcomes that digital engagement can have, there are also troubling implications associated with free labour generated by users of platforms. Now on a very practical level, a lot of the work that's being done at the intersection of art and tech, at a coding level that is, is open source. Everything done pretty much sits on GitHub, which is, for those who are not familiar with it, a website and a cloud-based service that helps developers store and manage their code and also helps developers track and control the changes to their code. As one technologist or an artist recently told me, this conversation we're having in the media arts is, are we all doing free R&D for Google? Now, these concerns were also brought, uh, brought to life in, in a response to a two-day hackathon set up by the Metropolitan Museum, Microsoft and MIT in 2019, which was designed to explore how artificial intelligence could connect people to art. Now, one of the criticisms levelled at the event, uh, and this was by Artnet's um, uh, editor of Art Business, Tim Schneider, was that the initiative and I'm quoting here, encapsulates big tech's continued mission to camouflage AI as either a lighthearted politic trick or an unqualified good while it rams a crowbar into the socioeconomic divides already ripping apart 21st century society. So what really are the motives of the tech collaborator collaborators who for little more than offering of um, you know, weak software freebies receive personal data and cheap labor? This doesn't mean that all collaborations are doomed to failure though. Let's take a look at what some of these scaled up modes of working could look like. Firstly, the art stack. So in the Serpentine's 2020 Future Art Ecosystems report, curators Ben Vickers and Victoria Ivanova identified a new type of operational model, the art stack. Borrowing from tech world jargon, the term is a play on a technology stack, 
where a technology or a solution stack provides a streamlined solution with various subcomponents. So an example company which commonly accompanies tech stack definitions is, for example, Facebook stack. So Facebook stack or Facebook's front end includes things like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, UI frameworks and libraries. And the back end includes PHP, React, GraphQL, Cassandra, Hadoop and Swift. Now, according to Vickers and Ivanova, an art stack is a vertically integrated art studio that resembles more a corporation than it does a traditional artist studio, employing specialized staff, developing bespoke technologies and business models. It has a range of in-house functions that generate novel revenue streams for the art stack to invest in itself. But we do need to consider the art stack model with caution, as it does require scaling. As Vickers and Ivanova note, scaling artistic practice is at the heart of the art stack model. Scaling is also what is required for a more leveled engagement with the tech industry. Yet scaling carries a risk of reducing sophistication and nuance, nuance that good art is generally credited with. And so they ask, could creative scaling then become a pursuit in and of itself for arts organizations and artists? Let's now look at the art stack model applied in practice. Firstly, the phenomenon that is TeamLab. So TeamLab's artworks are created from conception to realization in-house. They have teams dedicated to the creation of materials and hardware, architectural design, and the development of software. As they note, and I'm quoting here, what is really interesting and often chaotic is that while we combine relatively new technologies, we turn our ideas into visuals and scales that no one has ever imagined and execute everything with an in-house team. Now, TeamLab initially made little profit, profit, but began to grow its reach through the creation of websites, smartphone applications, as well as office and store designs for outside corporations. So, for example, even to this day, TeamLab serves as the principal developer for the Tokyo Disney Resort app in partnership with Disney. Now, TeamLab also is the part owner of its own museum, which it opened in 2018 in Tokyo at the Mori Building Digital Art Museum. Now, TeamLab had control over all aspects of the development of the Mori Building. Uh, as one of the team members explained, Everything that you see at Borderless, and that's the name of the museum, has been designed and implemented by TeamLab. From the artwork to the floor plan, we even designed the ticketing system. The complete control we had meant that we could tailor the user experience to our liking. Another example of an art stack in practice that I wanted to uh, discuss was the studio of Rafik Anadol. Rafik is a Turkish media artist, director, and a pioneer in AI aesthetics. Now, he currently resides in Los Angeles in California, where he owns and operates the Rafik Anadol Studio and the RAS or RAS Lab, which is the studio's research practice centered around discovering and developing trailblazing approaches to data narratives and artificial intelligence. The Rafik Anadol Studio comprises designers, architects, data scientists, 
researchers from diverse professional and personal backgrounds. And their website notes that they embrace principles of inclusion and equity throughout every stage of production. Studio members originate from 10 different countries and are collectively fluent in 14 languages. In fact, the studio itself has its own dedicated front end web page. Now, another reference point a little closer to home is the Mulka project based at Buku Larangai Mulka Art Centre at Yirkala in northeast Arnhem Land. Now, Mulka have an archive of more than 80,000 photographs, sound recordings and films, which are owned, managed and operated by the Yolongu people. Now, the program and technical director, Joseph Brady, has explained that Mulka's purpose was not to make, and I'm quoting here, Mulka's purpose was not to make art. Mulka's purpose was to be a keeping place for old material. And the art side of it has just come as a result of merging old knowledge and material and using state-of-the-art technology to combine the two. Now, in terms of the varied skill sets, Brady explains that there's a real varied mix of technological skills across Mulka's staff base. Artists, filmmakers, there are translators, there are academics, there are more computer-minded people. And so he says that in essence, a lot of the work that comes out of Mulka is a collaboration because everybody's helping each other out. So if someone has a film piece they're doing, then it takes all of Mulka to make that happen. We're all sort of working on each other's works. So what we see with these examples is that the individual artist model becomes team-based with each individual representing a program or a form of software within a tech stack. Now the other scaled up model we might find useful to consider here is the DAO or Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Now a DAO is a structure which allows people to benefit from a shared activity with no central leadership. And a good quote that I found to um, explain a DAO is uh, as follows. So a decentralized autonomous organization is a computer program. It runs on a peer-to-peer -peer network, incorporating governance and decision-making rules. DAOs can be programmed to operate autonomously without human involvement, or the code can provide for direct real-time control of the DAO and funds controlled by it. The earliest DAOs are software controlled community organization experiments, which seek to re-implement certain aspects of traditional corporate governance, replacing voluntary compliance with a corporation's charter with actual compliance with a pre-agreed computer code. Now the possibilities of DAOs for artists work were explored in a series of online events that ran from January to March this year, titled the DAO Sessions Art World Prototypes or DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations Working with Others. That's the, DAO, that's the WO, so DAO. Now this series of events was curated by the Artistic Director of Further Field, Ruth Catlow, um, writer and researcher Penny Rafferty and Ben Vickers from The Serpentine. And each event introduced one of five new progressive blockchain art prototypes created by DAO teams in Berlin, Hong Kong, Johannesburg and Minsk. Now, in each session, a team would introduce their prototype and address key questions about the potential of blockchain systems to decentralize power structures and to rewire the arts. Now, one of these events was focused on the Black Swan DAO, which and I'm quoting here, which whose mission is to respond to the increasing precaritization of cultural labor by providing practitioners with tools to collaboratively organize and share resources.
Now the Black Swan DAO project uses the DAO formulation as a peer-to-peer -peer support structure for cultural workers in Berlin and beyond. And according to their white paper, their model does not pursue what is most profitable or in vogue, but it provides an environment for self-organized funding and autonomy of a small node within the wider art network. The Swan Dow aims for remuneration to be given for intensity, commitment and dedication rather than power, property or status. None of which deflates from art being produced. In fact, art should thrive under such conditions. And they say a Swan Dow is not a divine saviour, but a potential microgrid model for emerging artists and creators. Now, the first iteration of the Black Swan Dow initiative will actually take place soon at the end of August uh, in the form of a three-day hackathon at Berlin's KW Institute for Contemporary Art. And participants in this event will role play different economic models and organisational forms. And then the successful applicants will be assigned to one of four communes, clan, guild, cults or venture. And each commune is based on a different mode of exchange, decision-making process and organisational structure. So within their commune, participants will negotiate, trade and build on the real art resources provided to them by their stakeholders. And these resources will include things like microgrants for artistic research and development, exhibition space and technical support, um, a studio and rehearsal space, mentorship from experts on the day of the hackathon, uh, and so on. Now, the future of these scaled up modes of working, as I mentioned in my introduction, I think does depend on a solid legal structure. And in different disciplines, legal structures and tools are used to varying degrees to support the collaborative process with varying levels of success. And that's because within each industry, whether it's art or science, engineering, technology or academia, the attitude and approach to the role of the law is different. The creative industries and the art field in particular tend to shy away from legally onerous forms of arrangement. Whereas in the science and engineering fields, collaborative practice tends to be realised in the form of legally binding licence contracts and the acquisition, or what is generally described as the vertical integration of legal, legally recognised entities. But where the practice itself has its own personhood, is corporeal, is incorporated, well, much like an incorporated entity, this is where the solid support structure can come into play. Now, in the eyes of the law, a corporation is entitled to certain rights and protections. And the corporate veil, which the corporation is privy to, generally shields the natural persons who own or control it, the shareholders, from certain liabilities which may arise from the activities undertaken. And this enables the body of the corporation to act as a kind of a second skin, a protector housing the organs possessed within. And notwithstanding this concept of the corporation, collaborative relationships relating to the production of art tend to be structured as unincorporated entities in the eyes of the law. And indeed, historically, incorporated entity structures have rarely been utilised in the context of project-specific collaboration and collaborative relationships, particularly those involving artists or otherwise taking place within the art industry. Nonetheless, an incorporated joint venture or what's called a project-based enterprise is an interesting structure for us to consider in the context of collaboration, labour and the change modes of working of artists. 
Now the project-based enterprise was interestingly first identified in the context of temporary projects in the film industry in the 1990s as a kind of a unique company structure. And like a tr traditional unincorporated venture, a project-based enterprise or this kind of incorporated joint venture structure, it allows for a temporary arrangement where the input of each party can be varied while they can all share in the profits. Now in practice, where it differs is that a separate company is incorporated for the project term and each party becomes a shareholder in that separate company. So the exposure to the legal risk of each individual to the enterprise is limited. Nonetheless, as with all incorporated structures, hierarchies of power still operate in the incorporated joint venture or the project-based enterprise. Now, in the case of a company, it's the shareholders who have the right to appoint the director in control, and those with greater shares or the rights to acquire shares can exert greater influence. Now, it's the contract and the jurisdiction-specific corporations laws that are therefore crucial for implementing the checks and balances to the benefit of all collaborators involved. By contrast, a traditional DAO or distributed autonomous organization is not a corporation and it cannot perform many of the tasks commonly attributed to it, like owning property or engaging in contracts. So without the veil of corporate protection, participants in a DAO need to take precautions if they wanna be shielded from liability and additional unnecessary risk. Some US jurisdictions have gone so far as to introduce a corporate underpinning for DAOs. In other words, it is possible now in some jurisdictions in the US to register a DAO as an incorporated entity. And actually locally in Australia, we've seen digital lawyers call for the DAO corporate entity that has limited liability as well. So what's it going to take us to get there? A solution that implements legal structures and tools to advance the aims of each individual project is essential. And that's where the work of the Serpentine Legal Lab kicks in. The Legal Lab is focused on gathering and sharing knowledge that could enhance and make legal infrastructures more accessible for collaborations across art, science and tech. Uh, we recently released our first report on legal issues in art and tech and science collaborations, which is the culmination of two years of research. And in this report, we've laid out a series of short to medium term and long term action points, which the lab is keen to pursue. Uh, we're inviting anyone who's interested in contributing to one or more of these action points to get in touch with us to start the collaboration. Um, and that brings me to the end of my lecture. So thank you again for having me. I'm looking forward to discussing these ideas further with Julieta and Miriam. Hi, I'm Julieta Randa. Um, thank you so much to Aka, Miriam, um, Bianca, and um, the people that are uh, having me take part in this. Um, it, uh, it's, it, it was wonderful to listen to Alana's presentation. Um, now I want to um, talk in a, in a very different fashion. The, the presentation I have uh, prepared for today is called We Made Such a Mess. And um, in this presentation, I'm going to ex try to examine in, in a way um, the kind of relationship that we have as humans, as artists, as cultural workers to the toxic environments that we have produced within the field. And 
how can we negotiate uh, life and culture flourishing in the poison landscapes of industrial capitalism, not just as it pertains to life in general, but also within the cultural field. And like, especially as we focus on planetary ecological concerns as subject matter for artistic production, for cultural thinking, we need to make sure that we produce the ecologies that we need for the art world to be a, a, a viable, livable system. And what I'm trying to say here is that to be able to produce sustainable futures, we need to make sure that we produce sustainable presence. And if we cannot live in the moment, we cannot live in the future. That does not exist. That what does not work today will magically work tomorrow. So looking at the presence in which we are living uh, without trying to fix them by way of nostalgic thinking or assuming that we would go back to some kind of um, fantastic imaginary. What are the formulations of hope that we can produce? Um, so I'm going to start here uh, by telling to you a couple of anecdotes. They are personal and they may seem unrelated to, to the topic, but they are actually like a big part of the troubling baseline of where the cultural field is at. So first, I'm gonna tell you something that happened to me on 2018. I was invited to take part in a public art festival in Munich by a curator that will remain unnamed. What is important about this curator that has no name is that this is a woman that has positioned herself as someone that works with both the legacies of uh, and the futures of feminisms. And it's also someone that has a very, very strong political practice, as one would call it. And also, like me, she is a mother. At the time of uh, this exhibition in 2018, uh, my son was two years old. Uh, I am a single mother, so I travel with my son everywhere. It's, I was doing it at 10, I'm doing that still. And while that is not relevant to this particular story, I must note that if we are talking about labor, the logistics and cost of caring for a child consume the majority, at least of my income. I don't know how it is for other mothers, but I am in a, put in a position which is, uh, I jokingly say it, but it's like I pay to be able to work. Um, in any case, for the particular event that I'm talking about in Munich, um, I was doing a very complex installation that involved a sound piece, a multi-part project in an ancient planetarium, a dance performance, a music set, a DJ, a lecture, and, and a lecture. So the curator offered to look after my child uh, when I was rehearsing and organizing the performance. I, jumped at the offer because I normally, I, it would otherwise it would have been, I don't know, something like 300 euros to take care of that. So of course I said, yes, absolutely. Also you have a child. So this is an occasion where I actually will have an artist fee. Um, the, day of the, the day of the rehearsal and performance, I left my son in the morning and came back at 2 a.m. the following day. Um, when I got, to my hotel room, my son was asleep with his clothes on and I didn't think much of it and I just fell asleep. But when waking up, in a second it became 
absolutely clear that there was something wrong. My son was crying and he could not walk. So in five minutes, I was like, oh, he has a broken leg. And what became relevant there for me is uh, why this is important is like, how come that the curator of this event who had invited me has my son with her. I don't mind that he broke a leg, kids break things, but how come she did not call me? How come I was not made aware? How come he was not given an ibuprofen? Um, and so I called her and she told me, oh, I didn't think this was a big deal. He only cried for an hour. And then as I pressed the question further, she, she told me, well, I was afraid that if I would call you, you would cancel the event. Of course, I would have canceled in order to take a child to an emergency room. Um, but what becomes, and anyway, I, I was in Munich, it was a Sunday, I managed to get my child back to Berlin, went to the hospital, got a cast, it was all horrible. And a week later, I got a message from the same curator telling me somewhat contritely, oh, I hope that this will not affect our professional relationship. And of course, of course it did. I mean, of course, this is somebody I will never work with again. And I, the point is not the personal here. Yeah, I'm incredibly troubled by the, the kind of like really awkward dance that the personal, the professional politics, spoken politics and lived politics dance in this situation. It, it, I mean, it makes me very sad because it's, it's, it's uh, emblematic of the way in which we live and behave in our field. I mean, of course, it took me a year or more. I'm, I'm not over. I, don't, I have a problem now leaving my child with somebody else, but that's not the point. It, this is about what it is that we stand for when we say that we are standing for something. Um, so I'll take this back in a second because this also has very much to do with whose labor matters and how do we care. Um, here comes the second story. A few months ago, I was waiting for a work delivery. I had a show that traveled the world and was coming back to my house. I am super mindful of my materials and my packing and my carbon footprint. So I sent a very um, compact uh, shipment. It was two cardboard boxes double box, there was nothing uh, breakable there, and a cardboard tube with three prints. So I was expecting something alongside that volume. And so I was corresponding with the transport company and it took some time. It was, it seemed too complex and I could not understand why. And when the transport arrived to my place, which is a three floor walk up, I realized they, why I was, I, I got a call in broken German, broken English and very good Polish uh, to tell me that there was a problem bringing the work upstairs. I went down to find that there were three gigantic wooden crates stuck in the stairs of my building in horrible ways. You can see the images of that. And two transport people, one of them badly injured, trying to 
figure out what to do with them. Um, first of all, I could not understand how my work gained so much weight over two years. And secondly, I was like trying to figure out how to send somebody that was clearly uninsured into an emergency room because he had given himself a pretty bad injury. It, it seemed that he broke, um, he ripped a muscle or something. So, um, of course, like these like three gigantic crates were blo blocking the stairs and the hallway. And it took me again two days to figure out how to dispose of them, how to open when when I opened them, just trying to understand what it is that I was receiving, considering that I had sent, let's say I sent um 15 kilos worth of work, but I got back 200. So as I, as I opened the crates, what I realized is that I was getting back pieces of protective display, lots of plastic, and two crates that were shielding my initially double box cardboard boxes. And the, I mean, the question that, um, that came to me was like, well, why, I mean, like, how much did it cost to ship these crates around the world? They probably were made the moment that I sent my work to England because I did not send it and send it in some kind of like a proper package way, I guess. Um, but why at the end didn't I just get uh, uh, the money to reprint my images and instead have to be on the receiving end of 200 kilos of stuff being shipped around the world and feeling incredibly guilty for the for the injury, like the severe injury that the transport guy got, so um, these two incidents. I mean, I, I could tell you many more, but these two incidents made made me think a lot about the, the kind of labor that is involved in in our field and how. I mean, if I, what I wonder is if we put our money where our mouth is, and uh, very often we don't. So the, um, the kind of like toxicity that we have created and like the kind of, uh, um, there is something that I call um, the gladiator model, which is where, um, and I hear I'm taking something from um, models that Alana was uh, describing earlier. Um, basically like, when an artist goes to art school, you are put on a field where somebody tells you, well, look to your left, look to your right. Nobody, like most of the people that you see will not be here at the end. And so you have to fight with people that ideally should be with whom you discuss your ideas and that become your peers. So um, it's, a, it's a fiercely competitive field and what we are competing for amounts to nothing because we don't benefit from from uh, <laughs> like any of the real gains that are derived from our profession. Um, maybe I will uh, segue a little bit to the um, an art scandal that was on the papers today, which was uh, about. Uh, basically a pyramid scheme called the Artist Pension Trust that started some 10 years ago, where artists were convinced to put some works in trust 
on the idea that eventually they will get solved and there will be some kind of windfall for everyone. And of course, this happened about 10 years ago. By now, there has been such a change of like a, re a revolving door of personnel and things that nobody knows where their work is. And um, nobody has gotten any money, of course. And there is some guy that has made himself a collection of some um, 30,000 artworks. So these are like these, these three things are like unescapable toxicities that high, I mean, like examples of unescapable toxicities that I think are situations that need to be resolved before we can be super optimistic and think about streamlining and producing and doing these fantastic things um, within the field. Yeah, like, because otherwise, I don't know who are the people that are supposed to be able to work. Um, and I keep thinking about um, common practices and commoning and what can be an artistic model that is not based on singularity and competition. As Alana was saying, yes, there is collaboration and um, it is not only about like the different sets of skills that people bring into a common plate, but about that common plate. And what does it mean to want to do things in common? And what does it mean to not just have one's own interest at heart? This is like really, um, this runs contrarian to the art field, which is so interested in provenance and in adjudicating responsibility for a work and for genius to one particular person. So what happens if we don't want to work like that, if we want to actually do a commons that is not just a marriage of convenience, that is not just good for me right now, but where it's possible to think about something that is good for us. And what does it mean us? And is it possible to produce in both a um, a kind of like singular track and a common track without losing um, sight of who one is. Um, I mean, these are these are all um, matters that I think about um, now as I am trying to start a. I, I, I run together with my partner Anton Bidotle uh, a project called Time Bank uh, under the umbrella of Eflux. Um, which was a kind of an experiment on commons uh, where we try to value the time and the, not just the time, but aspects of uh, cultural exchanges that normally go unnoticed um, as a kind of alternative economy tender. So as we had the time bank running, like the idea was that individuals could use the bank as a, as a node from where to find other people to exchange um, uh, skills or knowledge of or work or time um, somehow. Um, this was uh, on the on the 
heels of the 2008 financial crisis, where it seemed that it was important to do something like this. So the project ran happily for um, about six years until we got intensely tired of uh, being bankers and wanted to move on to other things. And now uh, in the last year or so, uh, I have been asked to resurrect this project and I've been looking at it and actually realizing that it is, yes, I want to, I understand why it's important to do, to, to look into these kind of exchanges again, but maybe it's not interesting to do it right now at an individual level after we have been so fragmented and compartmentalized and reduced to little squares on the screens. Um, but to try to figure out what it would be like to have collective exchanges and to figure out what it would be at common time and to maybe try to, to address the toxicity and the many toxicities that I see on the field, pitfall after pitfall after like holes and horrible places that you can fall into and never recover from um, with a kind of um, more joyous landscape where practices can be integrated, where sensibilities can be integrated, where a kind of sense of shared interest can be integrated without having to compete for the immediate financial gain. I always think, I mean, like, yes, of course, as artists, we all want to make a living out of our, our practice, but we don't get into art because we want to make a living that we would get into dentistry if that was the case. So in the, how, how can we grace much more gracefully integrate uh, a sustainable model that has to do with our own subsistence, but also with our relationship to materials, with how to make sure that there are not hundreds of kilos of fluff shipped on our behalf, with making sure that there is some kind of pension system that would not <laughs> render us destitute when we are 60 and not trendy anymore. Um, how can we... As, as the art world has been like so intent on rediscovering old ladies in the over the last like decade or so, maybe instead of rediscovering old ladies, let's figure out ways in which women can continue working without having to put all their earnings into childcare. Um, um, yeah, I guess uh, I, I don't have any particular answers. I just have. Uh, questions and points that I think need to be addressed uh, before we move into, into rosy pictures of what we can do with AI and technology. And uh, I guess uh, that will be the end of my presentation. Thank you so much. Incredible. Thank you so much, Alana and Julieta, such valuable wonderful discussions, a really fantastic spectrum of organizing to disorganizing. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I think what came out of the discussions um, in terms of the way in which collaboration, working with other people, um, the exchanges you have that the art world <clears throat> really relies on so much, um, there was this sort of tension and, and, and interchange and that 
while trust has been um, eroded in so many of these ways, we're also talking about futures where we need to work out how to trust people better or how to trust um, ourselves and the way in which we can work to futures. Um, Alana, you talked about, you, you know, these situations where there are no hierarchies. Perhaps maybe we start with you in terms of how, um, how those situations are negotiated and then maybe um, Julieta, we can talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen work and not work in terms of time bank or your own experiences. Um, sorry, not like I mean, like not to say like the the thing is that um, trust is not something that I need to work on my ability to trust something. Yeah, like it's uh, so the the reason why I asked you to reward it is because it felt as if the inability to trust something would be a shortcoming of the artist in question, right? So the point is that the system is not trustworthy. It's not transparent. Nothing about art, the market, any like anything of it is transparent. So why would I trust it? I, I trust my collaborators immensely. I, I, I always work two-pronged. I work uh, a half collectively and a half individually, like, to keep, I have to sense there are things I have like no claims of authorship. I don't want them. Some things that are intensely mine and they weave joyously come in and out. I'm in conversation with a ton of people. I trust them all and everybody and anyone that I collaborate with, including my organization, Eflux, I trust. Do I trust the art system as is? No way, not with a 10 foot pole, not at all. It does not have my best interest at heart. It would have me schizophrenic signing off my trust to somebody and dead soon. So a gallery would rip out the benefits. I know how it works. It's not fun. What is their trust? I think um, I, I would definitely agree with you, Julieta. And that I think I also have quite a pessimistic approach to the way in which the art world operates when it comes to trust in that. In some ways, I think that we overvalue trust in the art world you know often and maybe you know if I think about my experience more as a lawyer rather than as a curator but you know something that I hear a lot is well we don't you, we don't need contracts we don't we don't need contracts we 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 we're better than contracts we can trust each other and I'm highly skeptical of that having been on the receiving end of what happens when those relationships break down <laughs> Um, and unfortunately, I think it's one of those lessons that you, you only really learn when you've experienced it yourself and that trust has been broken. I don't necessarily think that, that means that, you know, we can't improve the way that our system works or the way that people treat each other within that system. But I, I don't necessarily think that, you know, trust is the answer. And in that sense also, you know, I don't know if there's something... I don't know if that issue of trust within the art world is specific to the art world as opposed to, you know, maybe it's something that's just more or it points to the way human beings are as part of our nature. Um, I don't think that other industries are necessarily better at being trustworthy than the art industry is. 
Um, I mean, like a, a couple of things there, yeah. Like um, there is something particular to the art industry in this case because of the way in which profit is constructed. So it's, you know, like there are other industries. I do not consider what I do industrial work. So I, I'm gonna take issue with the label there, uh, but there are other industries in which profit is accrued in a very Marxian capital description where you have people toiling, laboring, profits are ripped and so on, right? In my case, my work exists. I, it's like I can I weave the profit out of nothing, but I don't get it. Somebody else, the person that sells it and so on, gets it. And that person has been trained by the system to try to con me out of it by any possible way. You know how much work I have lost in storages of galleries? You know how much work never came back from exhibitions, you know? And the answer is always, oh, you can just make more. You can just make more. Secondary market, you can just make more stuff. So I, I am not, at, I'm not like, you know, like it's uh, like if we think about industrial models, you know, like there is like horrible sweatshop models, but that, that has nothing to do with how the artwork is structured. The artwork is structured. So I, I mean, I do need to, and, and the trust issues, the, the refusal to give contracts, the refusal to, to, to give artists a cut of secondary market uh, deals, the refusal to, I mean, when I try to, when I, you know, when I write consignments to my galleries, they always balk. When I tell them, no, the world does not stay in your storage, it comes back to me. They always tell me I'm so difficult. So, but you know, like these are like standard. I mean, if you want to see it as an industry, these are like, like uh, uh, supply chain things, yeah? Like I can supply you with things if I don't get anything back. And I'm not, so it's, it's not like that artists are so romantic that they just want to trust their galleries. It's, it's, it's that galleries are really horrible people, you know, and they are trained to be. The problem is not trust, it's transparency. I, I, I trust my fellow artists and I don't want to compete with them. I am sick to death of, of the market system. And I would totally love to, you know, take the trouble of have uh, um, collective enterprises where we care for each other's work and where we deal with it and where we are transparent about how it gets profited from and who gets the money. Yeah, like I'm, I'm tired of funding villas when I cannot pay a nanny. Like, I'm really tired of that. Alana, can I ask you to, um, with that provocation, talk a little bit more about the, the DAOs that you've seen working. You talked about Black Swan, but a lot of those people involved in Black Swan have been in many other sorts of DAO practices, what they've learned from those, uh, how you see it kind of picking up on those things that Julieta is saying are really key to, to moving beyond the current structures. Sure. Well, I guess um, the DAO as an idea is different to the DAO in practice. Um, and, I, and I think that's why in practice the DAO needs something more than the 
the, its concept in and of itself and the way it works. So, you know, ultimately with a DAO, it doesn't need trust. You don't need to trust human beings because you, it, the computer code does it for you. So it's, the code replaces that human trust level. Um, but I still see it as having more potential when it has a real world applicability. And I think this is where a lot of DAOs and practice fall over in that if it is going to be fully decentralized, what does that mean for this as an entity and a concept in real life where there are real people behind these these entities and these structures. So if you're not going to incorporate, if you're going to stay completely decentralized in a way, you are completely exposing yourself to each and every risk that that DAO is taking. So it's sort of a catch 22 in that we have artists and curators and technologists wanting to innovate with this type of model. And yet at the same time, they have to completely expose themselves in a way where they don't necessarily have to do it. So that's why my thinking is that really for a DAO to work better in practice, it needs that legal support structure. It needs to be recognized as, as an entity in the real world that can buy and sell things, can own things, can, can protect the people behind it. Um, otherwise, it's sort of selling itself short. So it's perhaps not as a utopian an idea of a DAO as, as the DAO purists would have it, but it's a more, it's a real world application of how a DAO could, I think, work for the people behind it. Um, Alana, I mean, like, did, did you look at the, the, there was like a New York Times article today on the Artist Pension Trust. Did you see it? I had a quick look, yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, like when I think about what happens with, you know, this kind of like, I mean, like that was like supposed to be, I was asked to be part of it and it just like smelled fishy. So, so fishy, I didn't, but so many of my friends are, and so many of my friends are built of, I mean, I know at least a hundred people that were built of uh, 20 words each. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about like random artists. I'm talking about people on like the, uh, like Henry Sala, yeah? I mean, he was not part of one, but people like him were. So that's a lot of money. And that takes, that's a lot of, that, that was, trust is built in the name, yeah? Like it's a, and it's a legal entity that it's about collaboration and cooperation and how would we manage these things? So, but the I mean- artists, But the artists have no actual legal rights in, I mean, I, look, I haven't read the details of how it works, but, just because you give over some piece of something that you own to someone else doesn't mean you have control over how it operates. And that's where I would say, that's where I think a lot of people out there need to be doing their homework before they enter into these kind of arrangements other than relying on the marketing spiels or who's, which big names are behind it. And unfortunately in the art system, you put together a bunch of names and instantly, you know, a lot of artists will trust what happens, but nobody I mean, does I, to do I the think, behind how it works. You know, really think about, well, what happens if this doesn't actually work out? Like more I mean, often than not, that, does, that thinking does not take place. Well, let, let's say a, a couple of things. Like one, I think that a lot of people were not getting into the artist pension trust because of the big names behind it. The big names were a kind of um, 
security that this was like legit. Mm. A lot of people were doing that uh, because of pension. Pension is the key word. We get old, yeah? And as we are, uh, we don't have uh, the kind of like security that a lot of professions have. So pension is very attractive, especially when you have families. So a lot of people did that on the, on the promise of pensions, mm -hmm. like kind of like something that will make sure I'm not destitute. I don't die like Mondrian. I don't die like, like of tuberculosis in a little dark room while my galleries get rich. Yeah, like pension was the key word there, not trust. But that's a great thing, well, the concept. The concept, the concept behind the artist's pension trust, I think is a great concept. But the problem well, is- Well, for, for the founder, for sure. I mean, like he no, got like 30,000 People is where you go wrong. But the concept, there's nothing wrong with the concept. There's nothing wrong with the structure in and of itself. It's what happened- I mean, something must be wrong because like a, more than a thousand people got built from war, work. So something must be wrong. Um, I mean, the, the yeah, that's- uh, are you are either of you seeing um alana you talked about what's um promising in terms of um government thinking about futures of you know technology and supporting digital practice but is this not something that our governments should be thinking about that should be coming from you know a leadership position or is that just sort of like a hopelessly romantic ambition that someone might think about <laughs> the future of the the arts from a top-down perspective I just think that maybe we need to adapt to thinking about things not in a strictly art siloed way. You know, it's why, you know, maybe we need to think about recategorizing what it is that we do in a way that might seem relevant to people who don't think that the arts has a relevance. Um, I, That's I think that the emphasis on other people to make things work for us. I, I think that I'm more about people taking control of your might have to make it work better for them. So if the government is turning off the tap when it comes to arts funding, but they're turning on the tap when it comes to games development and R&D in digital tech, I don't see what's wrong with an artist saying, okay, I well, I can, I can take my research into this space and still potentially have future government funding if I want to rely on government funding for mm -hmm. my practice. But what you're saying is super dangerous. I don't want to be a game developer or a creative or a graphic designer. I, I have done, I have moonlight, moonlit as, as all of those things. I have done characters for a video game. I have done graphic design. I have worked for an advertising agency. To sustain my practice yeah like i i do not want to relabel myself as a creative for the larger industries I, I really don't and i think there is an incredible value to the humanities and to the arts and and to the kind of thinking that comes with them that so to to say okay let's just repackage this into a stem friendly envelope is dangerous and it's it's actually where we end up in, in in philosophical feedback loops, and we cannot extract ourselves from uh, sandbox thinking. So I would say that you know, like the like 
the possibility of being an artist that spans, and this is what Time Bank was operating from, yeah, like the, that there is a kind of like a very leaky situation there, yeah, like with a graphic designer, I, I have been that, I know, I charge, when I, my timesheets were horrible, I had to, to account for every 15 minutes, I spent 15 minutes of the logo for Pepsi, I did a tweak, I spent 15 minutes tweaking, I don't know, some photo retouching, whatever, yeah, like it's horrible. You don't account like that as an artist. You spend three months daydreaming. Then it comes and the idea comes and you don't know when it comes and where it comes from and why it comes and how it comes and where you are when it comes and you don't and you can't. And, and I've been at it for 20 years and I know that it just, it's, uh, it stays as uh, cryptic to me as it has always been. I give myself better material to be able to access better ideas, but they come when they come. So, and I, I could like mull over something for three months and then all of a sudden it coalesces and I can get it done in three hours. So what do I charge for? Three hours of work or three months and three hours? The three months that I agonize over something or only the three hours where I got it done that were like productive time. This kind of like productive, this sense of like productive time, I always use it in the pejorative sense. Yeah, like I do not want to be productive like that, ever. I, I chose my field with deliberation. I want to, to I do something else. I, it's, it's not a, a game design or, or packages for ramen noodles or as artistic as they may be, or, you know, it's no. And I want to protect that they, so to, to go back when we did Time Bank, part of the thing was to try to evaluate those exchanges and to say, okay, so how to make sure that that time that you spend thinking of something, drinking with friends, chatting, agonizing, doodling, can have a value and you can trade it with somebody else for something meaningful whatever that would be yeah like the, the the bar was very open um and i mean I, I still believe in 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 that kind of exchange and that kind of uh of, of economy i don't want to be my every i mean i want while i want to have a living and my child to go to school and to the dentist and so on i i did not sign up to be a graphic designer I don't want to become one in my old age alana um you spoke a little bit about the legal lab and i think in a way what we've talked across um, in a number of ways is some of the pitfalls of professional working and, and in an unprofessional environment. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about um, how people are being involved and what you're kind of learning from the people who've been involved so far in the legal lab. Sure. Well, I mean, traditionally when it comes to legal research or when you're working on a matter for somebody as a lawyer, you're only really directly exposed to the facts you have in front of you. So whatever your client tells you. And that's a very different way of processing and learning and advising to a more design-oriented way of thinking. And something that we've done with the Legal Lab for the last couple of years is really looked into the concept of legal design, which is a more design-oriented way of thinking about the law and access to justice more generally. 
And so our research project is quite antithetical to the way that lawyers might traditionally gather information and advise on that. Um, what we set about doing was looking at the different types of individuals that play a role within the art and tech and art and science ecosystem. Um, so those users could be anyone from an artist to a producer, to a technologist, a scientist, a sponsor, a tech company. And we looked at what their priorities are from each of their individual perspectives. Also, you know, we had different ways of research gathering. Everything from quantitative research to qualitative research. So really looking at statistics that we can pull together because in this space around legal issues and the kind of issues that artists face, there is not much statistics at all. There's not much information that gets publicized, that gets talked about. And so I think also one of our priorities was really getting that information out there so that artists could see that they're not facing these issues by themselves, um, even though they might not be talking about them with anyone else. There's a lot of other people out there facing the same, if not very similar issues. So we had everything from quantitative research to qualitative as well. Um, lots and lots of conversations and discussions, trying to understand what are the pain points that people experience or suffer when they are collaborating. Um, and which ones of those that we can um, see as being something specific to collaborations across disciplines and issues that arise specifically within the art industry as well. So the kind of methodology, the, the methodological process that we used were quite different to how legal research is generally um, done. Um, and so that's why in our report, you know, it's quite different also, I guess, to, you know, how you might do research in academia, for example, where in a sense you're supposed to, you're expected to have a thesis even before you start. Um, and the way in which we wanted to develop our thesis was in having that information to hand first that we were then going to gather. So does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's that's great. Um, thank you both so much. And if it's okay, I'd like to um, end with um, a kind of a silly, simple question. Um, Julieta, you mentioned hope um, uh, early on, and I guess I'm in a time when we're so, um, you know, a little bit hopeless in many ways. I'd love to know maybe what each of you are hopeful for. Like if it comes to me, I am uh, uh, hoping in like in that within the transdisciplinary conversations and collaborations and things that happen in the field, the possibility of many conversations and many futures that are fruitful for artists and the environments in in which they operate can be made possible. I mean, that's, uh, um, you know, from living wages to pensions to transparency. Uh, and I think I, I, I would just hope that people take the time to look after themselves um, 
and look out for themselves. It's very difficult to look out for others when you're not looking out for yourself as well. And I think those, those concepts go hand in hand. Yeah, fantastic. So great, so on point. Thank you both so much. Thank you for a really rich and um, enriching conversation. I really, really appreciate your time, your consideration, uh, your dialogue. Uh, and yeah, I just wanted to say thank you very much again for joining us and um, we look forward to sharing this with our audience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.